Well, today is a very special Sunday, and not only because it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, today is also the last Sunday of Epiphany, the season after Christmas when we focus on the manifestation of Jesus Christ to Israel and the world. Today is also Transfiguration Sunday. And today is the last Sunday before Lent. In a few days on Ash Wednesday, we begin the journey of Lent, 40 days of prayer and fasting that culminate in Holy Week and take us right up to Easter. No doubt many of us are feeling a bit weary going into Lent. We are now in the 12th month of facing COVID. It has taken a toll on many families and on our way of life. And though the situation is slowly improving, any kind of normalcy seems far off. Many of us are weary too because we're in the second half of a long winter. Uh, several weeks ago on February 2nd, Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, predicted six more weeks of winter. Apparently, Punxsutawney Phil is only right about 38% of the time, but given the cold weather we've been having recently, it seems that he's right this year. So we're a bit weary, but this morning we're going to consider an episode from the life of Elijah, a moment of great weariness, a moment when God met him, corrected his perspective, and sent him back to do the work he had called him to do. In our gospel reading for this morning, we see that Jesus is transfigured. Uh, it says in Mark 9.3 that Jesus's clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth can bleach them. Perhaps think of the Two Towers, the second book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the transformation of Gandalf the Grey into Gandalf the White. Two figures appear with Jesus on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. And some see these two figures as representative of the Old Testament. Moses is the giver of the law, and Elijah represents all the prophets who anticipate the coming of Christ. But it's also intriguing to consider the similarities between Moses and Elijah. At the end of Deuteronomy, there is an epitaph, a kind of epitaph for Moses, and he is described in a striking way. It says, there has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses is many things. He's the giver of the law. He's the shepherd of God's people, but he's also a prophet. So Moses and Elijah share this prophetic office. We also see several parallels in our Old, Test uh, Old Testament passage for this morning, 1 Kings 19. And in particular, we see that Elijah, like Moses, encounters God on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. So it's fitting that these two men, out of all the people in the Old Testament, that these two men appear with Christ on the Mount of Configuration. Before we look at Elijah's uh, encounter with God on Mount Horeb, I would like to provide a little bit of context. Uh, last week was World Mission Sunday. And in our Old Testament reading in Genesis 12, we see that Abraham is chosen to be the one that God will bless the world through. In terms of biblical chronology, Elijah comes about halfway into this project. 
and things are not going well. Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and this kingdom had about 19 kings over a two-century period. Not one had Davidic ancestry, and not one king followed God. All of them were reprobates who led the people away from God. And then things go from bad to worse with the reign of Ahab and his marriage to Jezebel, a Phoenician princess. First Kings 16 tells us that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab not only tolerates the idolatry of a foreign wife, but he himself becomes an active worshiper of Baal. He builds a temple to Baal in the capital city, Samaria. And Jezebel kills many prophets and establishes 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, the mother goddess. But enter Elijah. His appearance is sudden in 1 Kings 17. He springs into the narrative with no proper introduction, and he begins his ministry with a proclamation of judgment. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew or rain except by my word. And with this announcement, Elijah directly takes on Baal, who's supposedly the God of fertility and rain. And this kind of power, the ability to shut up the heavens is something that hasn't been seen in previous prophets. In our Old Testament passage for this morning, we find Elijah complaining to God at Mount Horeb. But why? Why is he there and why is he complaining? This episode comes after his great triumph on Mount Carmel, the contest that Elijah has with the prophets of Baal. God answers with fire from heaven in a very dramatic way and consumes the water-drenched altar. And then God sends a great rain, ending several years of drought. Pardon the pun, but this is a watershed moment in the ministry of Elijah. After three years of famine, it, it's a victory for God and Elijah. And it's an exhilarating moment of joy and blessing. But this manifestation of God's power on Carmel and the coming of the rain are not enough to convince Ahab and Jezebel. Queen Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head, and the prophet runs for his life. By the time he's in the desert, one day's journey south of Beersheba, he's actually asking God to take his life. 1 Kings 19.4, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah was spent. Physically, he was worn out. Emotionally, he was depressed. And spiritually, he had lost his bearings. Some commentators are rather hard on Elijah here. Um, and certainly, his request that God end his life does reveal self-pity. But we should be sympathetic with Elijah as well. He's been on the run for most of his ministry, ever since he announced the drought. And no doubt, the failure to convince Ahab and Jezebel of the superiority of God displayed on Mount Carmel was a severe disappointment for Elijah. But God is faithful, and he doesn't leave his prophet in the dumps. He sends an angel who gives him water and a bread cake baked on hot stones. Elijah rested, 
and then he's fed again. And on the strength of this food, he's able to make a 40-day journey to the mountain of God. The angelic bread is amazing. Those cakes blow away any power bars, cliff bars, or even kind bars. True energy giving food. And of course, Elijah's journey to uh, Mount Sinai is symbolic. Moses spends 40 days and nights on the mountain of God without bread or water. God sustains him miraculously, and so it is with Elijah. Excuse me. When Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb, God asks him an important question. In fact, it's repeated twice. What are you doing here? This question is an implicit challenge to Elijah. Why are you here, Elijah? Why aren't you in, why are you here? Why are you not in Israel? Elijah appears to be abandoning his post as prophet. And then notice Elijah's response, which is also repeated twice. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, this complaint certainly seems valid. Elijah had been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. This is a godly characteristic. God uses the same adjective to describe himself when he gives the second commandment. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Elijah has a passion that God's supremacy should be known. He also talks about how the people of Israel had forsaken the covenant, thrown down the altars of God, and killed the prophets. So the nation under Ahab and Jezebel is clearly apostate. Ahab and his Phoenician wife are aggressively pushing Baal worship, and many prophets have been killed. And this leads Elijah to say, I alone am prophet. And in fact, much of Elijah's ministry up to this point had been in isolation. During the drought, he lived in exile because Ahab sought his life. He was alone at the brook Cherith, where he was fed by ravens. He was relatively alone in Zarephath, where he stayed with a widow and her son. And it seems that this isolation perhaps had skewed Elijah's perspective. Elijah may have been the only prophet of his kind, but he is not alone, as we will see. Elijah needs a clarification of his vision, including his view of God, and he's about to get it. And then we see this amazing theophany, this physical manifestation of God on Mount Sinai. And before God directly answers Elijah's complaint, he reveals himself in a remarkable way. It says, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah is commanded to stand before the Lord, like Moses did. But there's a key difference. With Moses, God had manifested his presence with a storm, thunder and lightning, earthquake, fire. These elements are present this time, but God is not in them. 
Instead, he makes his presence known in a barely audible whisper. There are different English translations of this phrase. Uh, many of you might know the famous uh, King James translation, a still small voice. Uh, the ESV is a low whisper. The New Living Translation, a gentle whisper. And then an interesting translation by Robert Alter, a sound of minute stillness. A sound of minute stillness. I like this translation because it gets at the Hebrew adjective here. The Hebrew word is daka, and it can be translated as thin, small, or fine. A form this word is used to describe manna in Exodus 16. Manna is described as a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. <clears throat> so sometimes God reveals himself with a great abundant feast, but sometimes with bread from heaven, God reveals himself and this bread is as fine as frost. The low soft whisper is also a sign of God's compassion on Elijah, his gentleness with his weary servant. And finally, it reveals an important lesson that God is quietly, almost imperceptibly at work in Israel. And we'll see this at the end of our passage. When God does direct, uh, directly address Elijah's complaint, notice that he doesn't answer Elijah's larger theological question or problem. Why does evil prevail or why does evil seem to prevail? Instead, Elijah is given the assurance that he would not have to confront evil on his own and that judgment would come. God renews Elijah's prophetic commission with two commands, go, return. Because as we see here, there's work that still needs to be done. First of all, Elijah needs to anoint Hazael king over Syria. Even though Elijah is weary after this long journey to Sinai, God sends him 300 miles in the opposite direction to go to the north, to the wilderness, and to anoint this man king. God demonstrates his sovereignty over the nations here. We see that in our opening verse for this service. My name will be great among the nations, said the Lord, says the Lord of hosts, Malachi 1. Elijah is also supposed to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Jehu would be the one who would destroy the dynasty of Ahab and execute Jezebel personally. As well, Elijah is told to anoint Elisha in his place as prophet. Elisha would succeed Elijah. He would be a companion for the lonely prophet, and he would assist Elijah as he was being mentored. And finally, God tells Elijah something very important, that there would be a remnant. There would be 7,000 people in Israel who would not bow down to Baal. So Elijah's campaign against idolatry, against the worship of Baal, is renewed at Mount Sinai. Ahab and Jezebel would pay for their refusal to repent, along with those who followed them. Elijah would receive help in the form of Elisha. And as we see in 2 Kings, Elisha would receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And there would be a divinely chosen people in Israel who would remain true to God. So as we conclude this sermon, I'd like to 
emphasize three takeaways. And many of you are experienced Bible students and you've been inferring these along the way, but I'd like to emphasize three things in particular. First, God does not condemn Elijah for his despondency, but he meets him in it. God does not condemn Elijah for being despondent, but he meets him in it. Elijah is one of the spiritual giants of scripture, right? He's one of the two people who get to appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he was a man. He was a human being, and we humans are fickle folk, aren't we? One moment, Elijah's taking on all of Baal's prophets. The next moment, he's running for his life because of the threat of one woman. We humans are not only fickle, but we're also finite. We are limited to one place at one time. We just have two eyes in the front of our heads. We have trouble seeing the bigger picture. So God meets Elijah in the cave of his despair in a very gentle and intimate kind of way in a soft whisper. And he corrects Elijah's perspective. He tells him to go and return for there's still work to be done. Running and hiding after all are dead end streets. A second takeaway, the best cure for weariness is a renewed vision of God. Elijah had a legitimate complaint. His ministry, even the great victory at Carmel, had failed to turn the people back to God. Evil persisted after this victory, just as it did after Christ was raised from the dead. But instead of focusing on his problems, Elijah needed to focus on God. He needed to take a steady, long look at the Lord and experience his power, his presence, his magnificence. Elijah needed to let the goodness of God pass before his memories once again. Elijah needed to trust God with the results of his ministry. Instead of fixating on Jezebel and her threat, he needed to focus on the living God. And we too need to be careful not to focus on the threat of evil, but rather on the power of God. And one last takeaway. God always has a faithful remnant, even and especially when the situation seems hopeless. It may look like the Ahabs and the Jezebels of the world have the upper hand. The people who are in power, who perpetuate false worship and immorality. But even in a time of great apostasy, God has a remnant. The story of Israel is a story of apostasy, but it's also a story of those who are faithful to God in the midst of apostasy. In Romans 11, Paul repeats Elijah's complaint about Israel's apostasy. And then Paul says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's important for us to keep in mind today. There is little doubt that traditional Christianity, traditional faith is on the decline in America. Measures like church attendance and biblical literacy show this to be true. And some of us may be asking, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Though the skies darken and we become weary like Elijah, we must remain faithful. I'll close with the Apostle Paul's admonition to the Galatians. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest 
if we do not give up. Amen.